Well, good morning. It's great to be with you uh, this morning. I wanted to uh, mention um, that uh, if you've been uh, at Resurrection OC over the last several months, you've heard, uh, talk, uh, heard, heard us talk about this uh, process of renewal that we are going through as a church. Um, we are working with a group called Restore, and uh, over the last six weeks or so, um, Matt Kaiser um, works with Restore, has been... Uh, just basically doing a, an ass, helping us do an assessment of where uh, our church is. Um, and there's a, a copy, a summary of his report um, that he uh, released to us on Thursday night. Many of you were there uh, for that night of prayer. But if you weren't there, I wanted to, to just let you know that there are copies of that report out on the table out here. There, there's, there's two one-page summaries, and one of them is two pages. So... Um, I don't know why they say one page, but there's, there's really three pages. They, there's one white and one brown. Um, but please uh, feel free to take one of those. If you have questions about any of that, I would love to, uh, to answer any questions or follow up with you. So uh, please grab one of those on your way out. Uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. If you didn't bring a Bible... Um, there's a blue Bible near you on the ground, and you can find Revelation 4 on page 1030. Or I'm sure you can uh, access a Bible on your smartphones as well. Uh, this year as a church, um, I've talked a little bit about this, but we, we, what we've done is we've structured the, the sermon series for the entire year around our core value of beauty as a church. And, and the reason that we're doing this is because... Um, we're often used to, as Christians or in the culture that we live in, uh, whether we find ourselves, whether we are Christians or not, I think we're familiar with the idea of, of talking about the goodness of God or the truth of God. Um, but there's also a, a third kind of art um, area to explore that tends to go unexplored, and that is the beauty of God, uh, the glory of God. The glory of God compels us uh, and the glory of God kind of pulls us out of ourselves, pulls us away from a place of being uh, spiritual consumers, looking just to get a kind of a moment of inspiration or a quick fix, and it transforms us into disciples who are committed to following God uh, on mission in this world. And so we are looking in large part at the book of Revelation, and uh, if you... Um, we're here before Easter. We were looking at uh, Revelation 1, 2, and 3, where you see a picture of, of who Jesus is. And then these letters to seven churches that, that Jesus dictates in Revelation 2 and 3. We took a little break, and now we're coming back to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. They give us a glimpse into the heart of reality. Now, I know the book of Revelation, for many of us, has the, the kind of connotation that it's really confusing it's kind of scary, and it talks about things that will happen like at the very end of the world, and, uh, and nobody really can understand what it all means. But I want you to think about what the word revelation means. If I were to say to you, I just had a revelation, I wouldn't be saying to you, I just experienced something that was really scary and confusing, and nobody really knows what it means, right? It would mean there was something that was hidden that has been revealed. And really, Revelation 4 and 5 uh, are kind of the center column that the book of Revelation and indeed human history hang on. In Revelation 4 and 5, um, the Apostle John sees a vision of what's going on 
not at some distant point in the future, but right now, and the curtain is kind of pulled back on human history, and we get a glimpse of what's really true and good and beautiful. And so my hope is that as we look over these next three weeks at these, at these chapters, that we would all catch a glimpse of what's really true and what's really beautiful about who God is, and, um, and that that picture, that glimpse of glory might transform us. So with that said, would you stand with me if you're willing and able? And I'm going to read Revelation 4. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. The Apostle John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard coming, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The living creature, like a lion, the second living creature... uh, like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is God's word. It's perfectly true. He says it. He gives it to you because he loves you. So would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, would you give us insight into your word? Would you help us to have ears that uh, hear and minds that comprehend and hearts that love? Hands and feet that move out in mission as we get a glimpse of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, uh, like I said, it's good to be with you. Um, I uh, have not been uh, preaching the last couple of weeks. Last last week, our um, our family was on vacation. Um, you, many of you, know that uh, before our family moved here four years ago to uh, to to plant Resurrection OC. For six years, we lived in Salt Lake City, where I was uh, ministering to college students, pastoring college students, and. Um, not this past week, but the week before we were on vacation. It was the first time since we moved here that our whole family has gone back to visit friends um, 
in Salt Lake City. So we spent a week uh, in Utah, and it was great to um, just see uh, friends that we love and a city that we love. And, uh, and we got to visit our old church last weekend and catch up with, uh, with friends. But it was fun to see uh, this place that was home for so long and to show our kids around. And, you know, they're almost all double in age since they, since they last lived there. And so it was fun to see kind of what they remembered and what they didn't remember and to drive by our old house. And, um, and it, was, it was fun to see. One of the things that's really unique about the city of Salt Lake is that all of the streets in Salt Lake are numbered. They're all on this grid pattern. And uh, I, I discovered fairly quickly that as we're driving around, my oldest son was already figuring out how the grid pattern works, and he would say, okay, we're only five blocks away from where you're going. The, the interesting thing about Salt Lake is that every there are no street names. They're just numbers. And so our house where we lived, we lived on the corner of 900 South and 800 East. And um, when I would go up, well, we took our kids up to the Pie, which is this great pizza place. It's like the quintessential college pizza hangout place. It's in a basement, and you write on the walls, and it's at, what, 1400 East and 600 South. And uh, wherever you go in the city, there's, it's not even really street names. It's like a grid pattern, and it doesn't take too long before you start to wonder, what is the meaning of all of these numbers, and where, where is this, um, system of numbers originating from? And the answer, you, you may know, you may not know, is, is that it begins at the corner of the Mormon temple in downtown Salt Lake. Um, the, uh, the grid pattern uh, originates from the Mormon temple. And so no matter where you are in the whole Salt Lake Valley, you can go all the way down to Ikea at 123rd South, and you know that you are 123 blocks away from the Mormon temple. Uh, and it's, you know, this is, this is just an observation. Let me just say as a um, kind of a disclaimer, if you have friends or family members that are members of the Mormon church, this isn't in any way a, a, a negative about, about the LDS church, but it's simply um, a, a fact that everywhere in the Salt Lake Valley, there is this kind of ever-present subtle reminder of the, uh, the influence of the LDS church in the history and the culture of Utah. And, uh, and, and, and your lives, if you live in the Salt Lake Valley, are kind of oriented physically, but in a deeper sense, culturally, around, around this building, around the LDS temple. Not all of us, I know, live in such overtly religious places. Um, there is no physical temple um, that the life of Orange County or South Orange County revolves around. And yet there are uh, other symbols that our lives orient around that uh, express much the same thing, whether it's seen in the relentless onslaught of catalogs that show up in our mail day after day after day that hold out the promise that the good life can be had with you know, just a little bit more whether it's seen in uh, the fact that uh, statistics tell us 80% of us check our email before getting out of bed in the morning. This kind of primes us to just the, the, the sense of rush and hurry and busyness uh, in our lives and the culture that we live in. All of our lives bend around something. All of us uh, have enthroned something in our lives and our lives begin to orbit around whatever that thing is. 
And all of this stands in stark contrast to the, the, uh, the images that, uh, uh, the words that I read just a moment ago. As we see in Revelation 4 and 5, because when the curtain of history is pulled back and we're given a glimpse of what's really going on behind the scenes of human history, we see that standing in the center of the cosmos, there is a room. And that room is the holiest place in the entire universe. And seated in that room, there are these angelic beings and there are 24 elders seated in a circle. And in the middle of that circle, there is a throne. And seated on that throne, well, he's not even named in this passage. It doesn't tell us its dramatic understatement. Who is seated on the throne? It's the Lord God Almighty. And our lives function best and most beautifully when we come off our thrones and our lives begin to orbit around. The axis of our lives is not ourselves, but the one seated on the throne. And so I want to just describe for you or kind of unpack for you uh, the imagery in this stunningly beautiful passage. And the first thing I want you to notice is this in verse 3. It says that he who sat there on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. It's describing... Uh, the appearance of the one seated on the throne and it's referencing his beauty by uh, or it's describing his beauty by referencing precious stones and um, I don't really know a lot about precious stones so I, I'll get some of this up but jasper is a stone that usually is red but can also be yellow, green or blue or have a translucent appearance just depending on the way that the light hits it um Carnelian is red, and it says around the throne <clears throat> there was a rainbow, which you understand is multicolored, but it was like an emerald, which is green. And so it's a description of the one seated on the throne. And he, it's saying that he is intriguing, and he is mysterious, and he is infinitely beautiful. And if you were to say, but what does he look like? <laughs> I think John would say, Exactly. Like, he, he's not describing the physical appearance of the God who the Bible says has no body. But what he's describing is the effect that seeing him had on John. Um, if you've ever seen a movie, any movie about pirates, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean is probably the most common now, but any pirate movie, I'm is convinced, has the, this scene. There is the scene where at long last, after, you know, 90 minutes or so of, of swashbuckling and pirating and, and whatnot, uh, the pirates are now going to go check on their treasure in the great treasure cave. And there's always this incredible cave where they have, uh, you know, hoarded up their loot over the, uh, over the years. And every pirate movie has this scene where the pirates, you know, approach the, uh, the treasure cave for the first time. And the director is wanting to give you the, the, uh, the sense of the opulent wealth that they have amassed. The first thing you see is not the cave and the treasure amassed there itself, but a shot from in the cave looking out as the pirate enters the light. And you see the warm, reflected glow of gold and rubies on the face on the face of the pirate 
And that, I think, is a picture, an image of what John is describing here. What we see is not the physical appearance of God himself, but the impression that seeing him seated on the throne had on John. It's a picture of immense wealth and beauty. But then we also see his power. Uh, In verse 4, it says this. It says, Around the throne were seated 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And then in uh, verse 6, the second half of verse 6, it says, And then around the throne, on each side of the throne, there are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And it describes them. And then in verse 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes, and the elders, uh, all day and all night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Okay, what is being described here? Well, there's, there's a lot of, uh, if, you, if you read uh, three commentaries on this passage, you'll get about seven answers. But it, it seems like the consensus is this, that the 24 elders that are seated in thrones encircling the throne of God, uh, they represent the, the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 elders of the New Testament church. And so what it is, it's a picture of uh, the, the totality of God's people, the redeemed people of God gathered around the throne of God. And then you see these four living creatures, and it says that they are, um, uh, how, does, how are they described? They are uh, the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face like a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. It's an image of the totality of the natural order, the created order. You know, the, the lion, uh, birds of the air, humanity, uh, and livestock. And then um, the interesting thing about this, uh, these elders, the way that they're um, described, you might not pick this up, but as I was researching this, I discovered this this week, that this, these four, or these 24 elders are not... Um, uh, these, they, they are men. They are not angels. Uh, sorry, these are not men. They are angels. Um, I said that weird. They are not humans. They are angelic beings. Um, I don't know what you think about angels. We have this idea that, like, you know, little cherubs, they're cute. They play harps. They're kind of like fat babies. But um, I don't know what you think about angels, but there are two words in the Bible that are used uh, for angels. The first, an- uh, the first word used for angel is the word cherubim. And the word cherubim is really a Hebrew word that means the winged creatures. And then the second word for angel is seraphim. And the word seraphim means the burning ones. Okay. <laughs> these, are, these are creatures that, to put it mildly, if you saw one, it would ruin your day. Um, the, the closest like analogy I can think of is, and please don't like email me about this, but I've no like if you were to encounter an alien, like that, that seeing an alien, like you walk out the school on your way to the car, there's an alien on your car, like that's what it would be like seeing one of these things. Again, like I don't have no dog in that fight, pro anti alien. I don't I don't care. Don't. Let's not have that be the thing that we take away from this sermon. Um, these are not cute little things. These are things that would terrify you. 
if one of them showed up in your life. Now, why am I making that point? Because look at what they're doing. In verse 9, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the, four, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne and they cry out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. These terrifying beings who are defined as winged creatures and burning ones spend their entire existence worshiping God on his throne. Now the question is why? Why would these powerful beings worship God? Well, it's in response to who he is. Think about this. What does God say in this passage to command their worship? If you scan through the passage, he doesn't say anything. God is named in the passage directly. He doesn't speak. But simply being in his presence has uh, this effect upon these powerful creatures. And they worship him. If you've seen the movie The Devil Wears Prada... It's the most masculine, cool movie I can think of to quote. <laughs> the Devil Wears Prada is this story about um, Anne Hathaway who gets an internship um, working at a fashion magazine in New York. And the fashion magazine is run by um, a character played by Meryl Streep. And um, I, I, uh, Meryl Streep is just this very powerful... Uh, fashion industry executive and I um, I heard an interview with Anne Hathaway uh, a couple years ago and she was saying that the first time the cast of this movie got together to read through the script just sitting around a table together um, they were approaching this point in the script where they knew that Meryl Streep's character was going to come into the room and just by the force of her personality, kind of knock everybody over. Just kind of bowl them over. And Anne Hathaway says, we're getting to this point, and I was beginning to cringe because I was expecting her to be loud and big and angry. And it got to her line, and she took up just a pause and whispered. And she said, everybody seated around the table leaned in. And that's what's happening in this passage. Um, when these powerful, terrifying creatures see God on his throne, they come off their thrones and they're drawn in and their lives begin to orbit around him. God doesn't even whisper, he doesn't even speak, and those in his, in his presence bend their will around him. Now why, why? Well, the reason that they bend around him is because according to verse 8, he is the Lord God Almighty. Because of who he is, he is the Lord God Almighty. And that could be, that could be utterly terrifying. Um, that image could be utterly terrifying. But, but look at the elders. Do they, do they seem like they're terrified? They, they come off their thrones and they take off their crowns and cast them before him. But they're doing it for joy. They're doing it uh, eagerly. 
Uh, what does that mean? Why do they take off their crowns? Why do they cast their crowns before them? I, I think about what a crown is. You know, most of us, you're picturing a gold crown. You're probably thinking of like Burger King. Uh, you know, paper crown. Don't think of that. <laughs> the, 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 the word that's used for the golden crown here is the word uh, for a crown that a, uh, a victor would receive in the Olympics. A golden crown, it's, it's, it's an accomplishment, it's a sign of, of achievement. Or think about it like this, if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and go to work or school or whatever it is that you're going to do tomorrow, and you were to walk in there, your normal self, but you have a crown on your head, do you think like anybody would notice? <laughs> or, hey man, like what's, what's up with the crown? <laughs> um, I think the crown, the, the crown is a picture of the thing for which you are conspicuous. Your, your accomplishments, your successes, your reputation, maybe your darkest secret. But the point is this, the elders take off their crowns and they toss them at the foot of the throne for joy because they see the true king on his rightful throne and everything else in life bends around him and they give up their crowns and they worship him the next thing I want you to notice in this passage verse 6 it says before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal a sea of glass perfectly calm like crystal um you know, we live in Orange County. We, uh, you, know, you know what the ocean is like? You know, when surfers say, oh, it was so glassy, dude. It's, it's, not, gla- it's not like crystal. <laughs> it's, it's saying that there was a sea, like, flat, absolutely calm, tranquil. Um, wh- what, is it, what is it saying? Um, the sea in the Bible is a metaphor for chaos. If you go back to the earliest, you know, Genesis 1, it says that uh, before God formed the earth, that uh, the, the, the kind of, God called forth the goodness of creation out of the chaos of the waters that, that hovered, uh, that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters as the waters were just brooding and chaotic. And it was out of the chaos of the water and the chaos of the sea that God formed his good creation. In the book of Exodus, of course, like the the defining moment in the Old Testament, God leads his people through the chaos of the sea, the Red Sea, into safety in the promised land. Of course, we all remember uh, the book of Jonah, where Jonah is cast out of the boat into the sea. Jesus calms uh, the storm when his disciples are afraid. The sea is this image of, 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 of chaos. Um, I had an experience last summer, I mean, up high on the hill in Laguna Beach, kind of overlooking the ocean. And, you know, we go to the beach and we think of it as like, I mean, it is. It's really nice. It's a relaxing way to spend the afternoon, go to the beach. But you never get more than about that far off of the, off of the land, right? And you, you kind of see the Pacific Ocean and it's, it's terrifying. It's, it's immense. It's you know, you go missing in the sea and you'll never be heard from a discovered again. But here it's calm. The sea is like glass. It's perfectly still. 
And the question is, how is the sea still? And, and the image here is that the one seated on the throne is using his, his immense power and glory and wealth to calm the chaos of life in this world. He's bringing calm into this universe. Now, I don't know how you would describe your life. Um, <laughs> I don't think any of us would use the word calm, would we? You know, it's, it's the beginning of summer vacation, which seems to f- have so much promise, and yet, you know, many of us with young kids, I mean, we're going, oh gosh, uh, how are we gonna survive? How are we gonna survive this summer? Um, chaos. Calm is not the word that I would use to describe my expectations for summer. Okay, that's the image, but, but here's where it all kind of comes together. In verse 1, there is a voice, and uh, it's the voice that John heard in chapter 1. It's the voice that spoke these letters to the churches in, in chapters 2 and 3. It's, it's the voice of Jesus. And John hears this voice, and he says, Jesus has come up here. And, and Jesus is inviting John into this room. He's saying, come into this room, this room that is the holiest room in all of the universe. And if we just read this, you wouldn't necessarily know this, but the, the, as the book of Revelation continues, what's clear is that this is an invitation to all of us. It's an invitation to come into the presence of God, to come into this holy, holy, holy room. Think about that like this. Have you ever had the occasion to walk into another adult's bedroom? If that sounds weird, it should. <laughs> there, there is a sense in which like the bedroom of another adult is a holy, it's a set-apart room. It's a, it's a room where just instinctively it feels improper to enter into. Um, several years ago, we were, uh, we were leaving on vacation. Some friends were going to house it. For us, and we were showing them around the room, uh, house, and where the you know water shut off is, all that kind of stuff. And then we walked. Ashley and I walked into our bedroom, and they both just instinctively like waited at the door, because th- there's this sense that you know somebody's bedroom is a is a holy, it's a set apart place. But what John is showing us is that at the center of the room, uh, center of the universe, the heart of the cosmos, stands the holiest room in all of creation, in all of the Well, creation doesn't even seem like the right word, does it? But it's the throne room of God. And what he's saying is you are welcome in this room. We come into the presence of God with the chaos of our lives and we enter into uh, the presence of his beauty and his calm and his power and his majesty. And the chaos of our lives and the stain of our sin does not infect that room. Rather, the presence of God, because of the blood of the Lamb that we're going to talk about next week. God is using his immense power and wealth and beauty to calm the chaos of our lives. Now, I know that we can say that on Sunday morning, and it sounds good, hopefully, but we're busy people, and by uh, you know, some of us are going to be involved uh, putting on kids camp for 50 children this week. And it's going to be hot and sticky and fun and chaotic. And how does the calm of Sunday morning connect to that? Or, um, you know, some of us are going to go to work and 
Uh, we remember the beauty, the calm uh, uh, that God brings into our lives on Sunday, but by Thursday afternoon, you know, the pressure to get it done and to get ahead. Or by next Friday, the, the, uh, the night of temptation uh, in, seems to invade and take over all that we are. And so the question is, how does the calm of this picture of God on his throne on Sunday morning connects to the temptation of next Friday or the chaos of Tuesday or the driven ambition of Wednesday. I have a friend named John and John um, told this great story. Um, John uh, travels a lot from work, travels a lot for work and he said um, one Saturday morning he was flying back into town and uh, he was driving into his neighborhood when he came around a corner and about seven o'clock on a cool winter morning, he came around the corner and saw a house on fire, a house with flames coming out of the roof and there was nobody around. And so John stops and gets out of his car and calls 911 and tells him there's a house on fire and he said that the, uh, the operator on the phone said, do not go in there. <laughs> John said, like, yeah, right, like that was going to happen. And then he said he heard, he, the house is over here, but he heard the, the siren like back here fire up on the, on the fire truck. And right at that moment, two garage doors open in that house and a car backs out of one. And John goes over and talks to this man who... Uh, you know, upon reflection is on, in shock. And this man goes over to the side of his house and picks up the garden hose and turns it on and hands it to John. And John stands there spraying water on a house that has been fully, you know, engulfed in flames for 10 minutes. And now they've opened the garage doors and introduced a new, you know, supply of oxygen into this house. And he's holding a garden hose while the man who is crazy walks up and down the sidewalk going, So here's the point. Either the stress of life will burn and burn until there's nothing left, you know, but us holding a garden hose going while the flame rages out of control. Or we will have our lives reoriented around the one who seats, who sits on the throne, who uses his immense power and beauty and glory to calm the chaos of life. And John said, as this crazy man was walking up and down the sidewalk, going, and I was holding a garden hose trying to put out a fire that I could never put out. The fire truck rolled up, and the firefighters piled out of the truck, and the fire captain pulled out a stopwatch and said, go, and in seven minutes, the fire was out. So the question is, Around what axis is your life rotating? What is at the uh, center of gravity of your life? Um, you know, for many of us, the thing around which our lives uh, spin, the thing on the throne of our lives um, are, you know, common everyday good, not necessarily bad things. 
You know, sometimes our lives orient around our financial realities. <clears throat> I get so anxious about the financial realities of life. Feels like sometimes everything centers around that. Or, you know, we put our kids on the throne of life. It's, it's almost a, um, it, it, it's, it's an excuse that cannot be challenged in South Orange County when somebody says we're going to do this because it's good for the kids. Um, but our kids aren't on the throne. Everything bows to the kids' schedule. Our sense of comfort, you know, however we define it, um, we live in a culture that has taught us to put self on the throne. And uh, the, the, the picture uh, that I think just perfectly uh, encapsulates that reality is, uh, you remember like a month or six weeks ago when scientists figured out how to take a picture of a black hole? <laughs> that you're not supposed to be able to take a picture of a black hole, and they took a picture of a black hole. And what is a black hole? It's, it's, a, it's a mass with such a strong gravitational pull that it actually sucks the life out of everything around it. Right? It's impossible for life to escape from a black hole. Our world, our culture tells us um, that you've got to create meaning for yourself, you've got to be true to yourself, you've got to follow your own heart. And at first it seems like uh, that holds so much possibility for us, but the truth is that it sucks the life out of us. It's, it dehumanizes us. Genesis, uh, Revelation 4 is meant to alter the axis of your life. It's a picture of what's really true and what's really good and what's really beautiful. And what's really good and beautiful and true is this, that at the center of all of reality, God sits on the throne. Your children are not on the throne. Your financial realities are not on the throne. Your comfort is not on the throne. God is on the throne. God is on the throne. He is beautiful and he is powerful and all of life truly orbits around him. And so in the moments of chaos, maybe the best thing that we can do is just take a breath and pause and take off the badge of our reputation, our distinctiveness and bow before the one around whom all of life truly orbits. God's power guarantees the final victory that he will share with his people. God's justice guarantees vindication for those who put their trust in him. God's goodness and beauty guarantee blessing and comfort. The blood of the lamb demonstrates that solid redemption has already been accomplished. Even in the midst of trials and persecutions, even in the midst of the daily realities, the ups and downs of normal life, God sits on his throne and he controls absolutely everything. And that is good news. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you and praise you for who you are. Like these... Um, Angels, God, we long to have our lives orbit around, around you, around your rule, because as much as we resist it, God, in moments of clarity, we confess that you are more stunningly beautiful than we could have ever hoped 
Oh, Jesus, thank you that you have made a way for us to come before the throne of God. Would the beauty of this chapter fill our hearts and minds today and this week? Would you reorient the axis of our lives around you, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.